Hello, and welcome to the B-Team Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Noop. I have a question for the Christians. When you first became a believer, what lessons were impressed upon you? So for me, I was 18 years old, a senior in high school, and I was handed a copy of my first 30 Quiet Times by my Young Life leader. It was an awesome place to start with short daily devotions on the nature of this new life in Christ and being part of God's family. I actually still have a stack of these on my desk at the church that I love to hand out to new believers to this day. Later that year, after I graduated from high school, at the encouragement of my Young Life leader, I went to Frontier Ranch, a Young Life camp, and served on the housekeeping crew. After that, I started my freshman year of college at the University of Texas, and I remember gorging myself on opportunity those first few weeks, checking out all the new clubs and Bible studies and campus groups. I was a newbie Christian who had opted out of rush because boys in the party scene were still super tempting for me, and I just wanted to see if I could start my college years off away from all of that. So it's a few weeks into the school year, my first, my freshman year of college, and I remember calling my old young life leader who had become a dear friend and mentor, talking a mile a minute about all these awesome opportunities. She listened carefully, and then she pressed me. And she didn't sugarcoat it. She exhorted me not to simply choose clubs that were fellowship and resume building, but to prioritize serving the church. In so many words, she urged me to skip the Christian sorority and do the young life leader training thing. Pay it forward. You'll find Christian community among like-minded servants, Kristen, is what she told me. So for me, the first two big lessons of my faith from the woman who first nurtured me in Christ were the importance of study and the importance of service. And man, those stayed with me. So what were yours? In our reading today, the back half of Acts 14, we're going to catch a glimpse of what couple things Paul impressed upon the new, the brand new believers in his parting thoughts to these first churches that he helped launch. And it may surprise you. Before we read, a quick orientation on where we are. This is Paul's first mission journey. He and Barnabas have been chased out of their last two towns, Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, by old guard Jewish leaders who think them both blasphemous and dangerous for promoting these ideas about Jesus being the resurrected Messiah. And now they're in a third town, Lystra. Let's read now. We're in Acts chapter 14, picking up in verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things and to the living God, who made heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he was not left them without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. 
Okay, let's pause here. So they enter Lystra and they start preaching, presumably not at the synagogue since their audience attributes their miracle to them being Zeus and Hermes. That's Greek mythology, by the way, in case it's been a few years since English lit. The thing that gets me here is how different Paul and Barnabas respond to being fawned over as if they were gods compared to Herod. Okay, remember Herod Agrippa, the client king over Judea? Back at the end of chapter 12, we read a little paragraph about how he set up a press conference one day to receive an ovation from the surrounding towns that wanted his favor and his food. As they praised him for having the voice of a God, the scripture says, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the glory to God and he became infected with worms and died. Gross and sad. By contrast, Paul and Barnabas recoil at the idea of being sacrificed to. It's not okay. They don't want celebrity status. They want to see this town worshiping Jesus, not them. So they try again to share the good news with them, reminding them that there is a God out there that is living and creative and patient who wants to reveal himself to you. This God is provider. The rain, the crops, the food, even your own joyful heart are the fruit of God's love and provision. This God is forgiving, merciful, gentle, and fatherly. So turn and repent. Stop worshiping these idols of stone that you created and begin a relationship with the living God who created you. There's a lot of shouting in different languages. Emotions are running high. The wreath delivery guy shows up and is all like, where do you want me to put this? There's animals bleeding as they see the altar and they're like, oh man, this did not end well for my cousin last week. Things are hyped up and they're about to get weirder. Because who shows up but some gunslinging Jews from Antioch and Iconium, the last two towns to run off Paul and Barnabas. They were not here to mess around. With violence in their hearts, they came to finish what they started. So let's keep reading in verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Holy smokes, this feels like the Wild West. They stoned him. Okay, warning or whatever you're supposed to say that this might get a little graphic. We've read about stoning before. Remember Stephen? Well, in my research, I learned there's a couple of ways they might do it. Lay on the ground and stack heavy slabs of stone on you to like crush you or some version of anchoring you in place and people pick up smaller stones to peg you. I'm not sure which method they employed here, but whatever they did, it was a bang up enough job that they presumed Paul dead. And now I'm going to go think about golden retriever puppies to take that image out of my mind. But seriously, this abuse Paul suffers brings me back to God's words to Ananias when he intervened in Paul's life back in chapter nine. Remember, God appeared to a guy named Ananias in a vision to go and heal Paul's eyes. Okay, at the time, Saul's eyes from his divinely induced blindness. Ananias is like, um, really, Saul? That guy is terrifying. But God says to him, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. We're seeing that play out, folks. Paul's life, big-time impact, big-time suffering. And so after being revived, Paul sneaks back into Lystra to recover. The next day, however, they keep going. No need, to, no need to let their enemies finish the job. They venture one stop further to a town called Derby before they go back through all the towns they visited and sail home. Let's finish the chapter. Verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city, Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Yay. 
Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each of the church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the, the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Two observations to wrap up this chapter. First, if Paul were to produce his own, my first 30 quiet times, with Luke as the editor and publisher of the first edition, we get a glimpse here of what might be in there based on his parting words to the churches before he heads home. First, the necessity of suffering, and two, the importance of leadership. The NIV application commentary on Acts by Ajith Fernando has a phenomenal section in this chapter about suffering. Fernando says, suffering is something that we can take on through obedience or something that we can avoid if we wish. Let me say that again because this hits me right between the eyes. Suffering is something that we can take on through obedience or something that we can avoid if we wish. Suffering is scary. Few of us would choose it. I mean, it's actually kind of abhorrent to our American culture to choose pain that you could avoid. The very marinade in which we were reared has trained us to be calculating consumers at pretty much all times, weighing the outcomes against the cost. And unless there's a gold medal or a big bonus or a contract or some other form of approval at the end of our suffering, few of us willingly walk that road. Well, what if instead of a gold medal or any token of human achievement, there's something far greater promised on the other side of our pain and suffering? Something like the very name of Jesus lifted up around the world? something like our own transformation to become more like Jesus? Suffering. We can take it on through obedience as Paul did and will continue to do, or we can avoid it if we wish. You and me can still dine at the king's table if our fear of suffering keeps us living smaller lives and convenience and comfort. It's not a requisite for salvation. Remember, nothing that we bring to the table earns us that salvation. It's just through the grace of God. But there is this kind of strange and majestic invitation for us to an adventure of a lifetime as we're immersed deeper in God's heart through companionship of suffering. Because if anyone knows suffering, it's God. He knows every story, every tear, every heartbreak and private pain of every person who's ever lived since the beginning of time. Think about that. He's seen everything. And he's been waging war against sin and death and disease and evil and despair since the garden. And he promises to be our friend and Lord and our savior as we embrace the pain of this life along with the pleasure. While I consider myself to be a real novice in this area, and I know that many of you have endured much more than me, I've experienced firsthand how pain and suffering can soften parts of my heart I didn't even know were hard and closed off. Paul's first lesson to these baby churches was the necessity of suffering. 
Chapter two of Paul's Primer in Christianity might be on leadership. Paul and Barnabas recognize that this group of believers needs order and structure. They need leaders. So they appoint elders, which is like a group of leaders who can discern and decide and shepherd the group. I think this is actually a really big deal. Do you have a group of leaders that while imperfect, you respect, who you pray for, whose decisions you abide by, who you support? It might seem better to just have a group of friends and we talk about faith and we just leave the rest between you and God. Let's just keep things super flat, you know, structure wise. But I think there's something really beautiful in linking yourself up with a local church, praying for its leaders, leveraging your collective giftedness in the community and submitting to its vision and decisions. It doesn't have to be a big church either. It can be a house church, but I do think there's something special about appointing leaders. Your leaders aren't there to lord it over you. And if they are, they will have to answer for that one day. They are there to follow in the footsteps of Christ and serve God's vision to see the kingdom come. So if you find yourself in a leadership position someday, remember that. We may do refreshments and photo ops in the 21st century church, but they appointed leaders with fasting and praying. This is real deal service, guys, not a resume builder. All right, second and final closing reflection. I love what we see here, how Paul offers us an antidote for micromanagement. Did you notice how they appoint leadership? The NLT says that with prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Paul and Barnabas were leaving, probably with hopes to return someday, but it could be months or even years. I mean, travel was slow and arduous back in the day, and he'd nearly been killed. But they trusted God, who had brought them this far and made himself known. They trusted God's goodness, God's provision, God's love for this church and this mission. And so they didn't obsess and worry and make themselves sick with fear or feel overburdened that the church might fail if they didn't stay. They fasted, they prayed, and they released. They released their concern over the church and its elders to the Lord's care. It's like the old saying, but for real, let go and let God. Maybe you could try this at home this week. Think of something that's worrying and consuming you. Could you, could I, because I can come up with something, could I fast and pray and then turn it over to the care of the Lord, the one in whom I've put my trust? Maybe that begs the question, do you really trust God? Can you release your burdens to him with the confidence that you've been seen and heard and compassionately received? And it's possible God might actually intervene on your behalf. Do you live as if God is real and trustworthy with the matters of your own ordinary life? If you're not sure, park your car at that question for a while. Take a posture of curiosity and maybe see where it takes you. Speaking of parking, I'm going to park it right here for about six months. We have just finished the first half of Acts. I'm going to take some time to research, outline, and prep for season two, kicking off in August 2021. And I sincerely welcome your prayers for this project. I really hope to honor God in all I say here and also just, you know, have a little fun. Last call to be sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll get notified when that first episode comes out later this summer. And if you've enjoyed following along, would you also take a minute to rate and review? I love reading y'all's encouragements and someday it'll be pretty cool to show my kids. Also, if you aren't my mom or my best friend who already has my phone number, you can always drop me a note at btmbspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Bye.